So what time are we living in? Is this the age of doom or should we be a bit more optimistic as Christians? Plus, my very first interview for The Word Grows, we're going to speak to Peter Lynn, the Bishop of the Georges River region, about his time in ministry at Fairfield and his strategy for reaching the southwest of Sydney. My name's Tom Abib and you're listening to The Word Grows. Just a reminder that if you like this episode, you enjoy the show, make sure you go and subscribe. It's free. And please head over to iTunes and leave a comment and rating. Uh, it really does make a difference in promoting this podcast. And also, please share uh, on your news feed, on your church's Facebook page, wherever you're on social media. Uh, if you could share this episode or share the podcast or, or even my website, that's a big help. Uh, also, if you are looking for more content uh, or you'd like to leave a comment uh, based on something I've said here, uh, you can go over to my website, www.thewordgrows.com. Uh, you can catch up on all my episodes, check out some articles I've written, and you can leave a comment. So if you hate what I have to say and you think Tom is the dumbest guy in the world, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You can do that. You can write a comment, and uh, I'll hopefully be able to talk about it on the next uh, on the next episode and um, just blast you and tell you why you're all wrong. It can be positive too. You can say nice things about me um, or just ask a question. Yep. Any comment is welcome, and I'll try and bring it up. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Today, we are asking what time it is. Uh, I've written a rather lengthy 3,000-word uh, paper on this that I post on my website um, over at The Word Grows, and, uh, and you can have a look at it there. But I want to take a bit more time to unpack what's really going on in John chapters 2 to 4, uh, particularly in chapter 4, in terms of the times that we're living in uh, at the moment. So in our last episode, you might remember, uh, I said that um, chapters 2 to 4, it's a unit. Uh, it's a section of John's Gospel. Think of it like a season with different episodes, like a TV show. Um, and the point of uh, this unit uh, is to tell us about what the kingdom of God is like. Now, you can think of the kingdom of God as a place, but you could also think of it as a time, as an age or an era. Uh, and that's what I want to be unpacking in this episode, uh, that in John chapters 2 to 4, uh, we actually are being told that because the Messiah has come, a new era has begun, a new age, a new time that we're living in, and that changes everything. Uh, this is the time of the Messiah, or, or what's known as the Messianic Age. Uh, so what does all this mean? Well, last week we saw that the arrival of the Messiah meant that the time had come for death itself to be swallowed up. Uh, and we saw that that would happen at Jesus' hour, that actually death would be swallowed up when Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, we also saw that time was up uh, for the corrupt religious practices of Israel. Um, you know, Jesus goes into the temple and uh, does away with sort of these corrupt practices, but also that he reveals that uh, he is ushering in a new way to meet with God, the ultimate way to meet with God, because the Messiah is himself God who's come to us. He is the temple of the living God. Um, and again, this is tied to his death. So the, the religious elite, um, Jesus tells them, that if you destroy this temple, his body, he will raise it up again in three days. Uh, and so from that point on, uh, we see that after the resurrection, we meet with God, we seek forgiveness in Jesus. He is the true temple. Uh, and so that's the time that we're living in. It's a time where death will be swallowed up after Jesus dies on the cross, but also where there is a new way to meet with God. We, we need to come to Jesus if we want to meet with God and find forgiveness. Now, chapter 3, we're told that as the kingdom of, arrives, entry will be dependent on rebirth, 
are not on birthright. Uh, so it doesn't matter that Nicodemus is a Jew, it doesn't matter that he's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Sanhedrin, doesn't matter how righteous he thinks he is. Um, everybody needs cleansing from sin. Everybody needs the Holy Spirit to dwell within them, to move them to obey God's laws. That's uh, what Ezekiel teaches and that's what Jesus says. And again, uh, Jesus links this to his death on the cross. So he says, if you want to be reborn, if you want to have your sins forgiven, cleansed, uh, you want to receive the Holy Spirit, you need to believe in the Son. Uh, You need to look to him being lifted up on the cross and you need to believe in him. And that is how rebirth comes about. And so what does this tell us for the times? Well, this divides our time uh, and all of humanity into two camps. Uh, There's those who believe in the Messiah and then those who don't. We live in an age where there are those who are in the light and those who are still hiding in the darkness. Uh, We live in a time where there are some people who have eternal life and there are other people uh, upon whom God's wrath remains. All of humanity has now been divided into two Uh, because of the time that we live in, because the Messiah has come and he's died on the cross for our sins. Uh, There's only those who who know Jesus and are saved and those who don't and aren't. And John the Baptist pretty much says the same thing at the end of chapter 3. He says, oh, sorry, um, after we hear about John the the Baptist at the end of chapter 3, John the Apostle, uh, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, we didn't get much time to unpack the John the Baptist part at the back half of chapter 3, so I thought it'd be good to just unpack what's going on there because, again, it's about the Messianic age, uh, the time that we're living in. Uh, John says that, calls Jesus, describes Jesus as the bridegroom, and that's a picture from the Old Testament of these end times, of this Messianic age when God himself will come and to his people uh, as a bridegroom comes to his bride, and they will you know, become his people. Uh, And the point that John the Baptist is making is that as the Messiah, Jesus has a much greater word for us to listen to than John the prophet, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, And we see that. John the Baptist says he delights to hear the voice of the bridegroom. He says he as a prophet must decrease, but Jesus must increase. Now, why is that? Well, because John says that Jesus is from above and therefore he can testify to what he has seen and what he has heard from above. So what does all this mean for the times? Well, if Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the one from above who has come into the world to speak truth, then we live in a time where we must listen to Jesus, uh, where all all the other prophets must decrease. Uh, That is not that you don't listen to them, but rather that you see that they point to Jesus and you listen to the word of Jesus. That is the time that we live in. Okay, and then what do we see about the times in chapter 4? Well, we see two really important things with Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. We see that this is the time where God is offering a gift. The gift of God is on offer through the Messiah. And the gift of God is living water. Okay, That is eternal life is on offer through the Messiah if you would receive it from the Messiah. Um, But there's another thing about this time as well. And that is that Jesus says that the time uh, is coming and has now come. Uh, What is the time when true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth? So because the Messiah has come... And because he is the true temple, uh, then the worship that God requires now is worship that is not determined based on location, whether you're in Jerusalem or whether you're in Samaria, but rather determined by whether you've come to Jesus or not. Uh, He is the one who is the truth uh, and he is the one who gives the spirit. And therefore, you can't actually worship God and and do appropriate worship to God unless you actually come to Jesus. And so the times that we now live in an age where you cannot worship God unless you've actually come to Jesus. 
And so by the end of chapter 4, we're, we're given this incredible picture of the time that we are living in. Uh, and really, it's, it's summed up brilliantly by the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul says uh, at the start of chapter 6, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And that really, that really sums up the point of, of the age that we live in that we see in John chapters 2 to 4. That because the Messiah has come, salvation is on offer. But it's on offer through Jesus. You have to come to Jesus. That was the point of the last episode. But it's not just that you have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus for salvation. Now is the age of salvation. The time has come. The Messiah has come. Eternal life is on offer. The way back to God. Victory over death. Forgiveness of sins. Receiving the Holy Spirit. Truth from heaven. Acceptable worship. It's all there. It's all on offer. The time has come for you to come back to God. And that's, that's the whole point of what's going on in, John's chap- in John chapters 2 to 4. Um, and so what we need to think about is, okay, well, these are the times that we live in. How does that shape the way that we live? Now, the most obvious answer to that is, well, come back to Jesus. Uh, turn to Jesus, repent, believe in him. That's the most obvious response to the times we live in. Uh, but there's also, uh, also, because of the times that we live in, it shapes our attitude towards other people as well. And what our work is, or what we should be doing with our lives, once we do come to Jesus. And this is what Jesus unpacks uh, in the rest of chapter 4 after he speaks to the Samaritan woman. Uh, so the disciples come back and kind of interrupt this awkward scene between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Um, they're really awkward about it. What are you doing here? The Samaritan woman leaves to tell the village all about Jesus. Uh, and then this, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Uh, he says to them, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. You see, the whole, the whole point of this section is that the disciples don't actually get what time it is. They think it's lunchtime. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's salvation time. It's rescue time. It's harvest time. And now is the time to be calling people to eternal life because salvation has come through me. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 34, he says to the disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And his disciples say to each other, could someone have brought him food? The disciples are pretty dumb. Um, and, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that's, uh, that's John chapter 4, verse 34. And that's really key there, that the, those two phrases, the will of him who sent me, so the will of God and to finish his work. So what is, now that we live in this messianic age where salvation is here, what is the will of God? What is God's desire? What is the work of God? What is God doing in the world? And the answer is bringing people to salvation. He sent his Messiah to die on the cross, uh, his own son to die on the cross for our sins, to make a way back to him. And therefore his will is obviously that people will be saved. And the work, the work that he's doing in this world is obviously to be calling people to salvation, to be calling people to eternal life. Um, now, we're going to unpack this much more in our next episode. We're going to really start looking at what the work of God is uh, as we look at John chapter 5 in our next episode. But I, I just want to touch on this now because it's really important. We need to understand this is what God is doing in the world. This is God's agenda. Okay? Evangelism is God's agenda. The work of God is salvation, bringing people to eternal life. He's got one thing on his to-do list, and this is it. Rescuing people from judgment, bringing them into eternal life. That's God's work in the world. Um, and the reason I, I go on about this, and we'll look at this more in... Uh, 
in a fortnight's time in our next episode is that most Christians, not sorry, not most Christians, most people in the world think that God is doing something different in the world if they believe in God at all. And, uh, and some Christians uh, really get mixed up on this and they think that God's work in the world is something other than bringing people to salvation. This is God's agenda. God is bringing people to salvation. But here's the thing, if that's God's will and God's work, then it means it's also the Son's will and it's the Son's work in the world. Because everything the Father does, the Son does. Again, we'll see that in John chapter 5. So the Son of God, Jesus, he is powerfully at work to be bringing people to salvation. Now, here's the crazy thing. If that's the Son's work, then it's also the disciples' work. This is our will and our work in the world today. To call people to salvation, to reap a harvest of eternal life. That's our job in the world. And you see how that's tied to the times. If the times are that now is the time of salvation, the time of God's favor, then the work that we're involved in is salvation work. It's calling people to eternal life. Or to use the harvest language, if it is harvest time, then it means it's going to be harvest work for us now. Okay, And, and, and that's really key for us to see. And this is what the disciples don't get. The disciples don't see that it's harvest time. They're focused on the physical. This, is, this happens a lot in John. They're focused on the physical. They're not focused on the spiritual. And so they're interested in food because they think it's lunchtime. They're not interested in reaping a harvest of eternal life because they don't get that it's salvation time. Okay, so let me just stop right here for a second uh, at, at looking at the passage and just have a bit of a rant because, you know, we need a good rant every now and then. So so just imagine here is, you know, short Tom Abib riding into town on his horse, um, on his hobby horse, just uh, having a massive rant. Okay. Here we go. I don't know why that image came to my mind. But anyway, we'll move on. So here's the rant. I think we're really getting this wrong, that it is harvest time. Uh, we're getting this wrong. We're mixing, we're, Our priorities are so mixed up as Christians uh, because we forget that it's harvest time. I think, I think we're getting this wrong on two levels. I think we're getting it wrong uh, on a personal level, also a theological level. So personal level, I think for the average Christian like me, uh, who knows, yes, I get it, we should be evangelizing. I know that that's the most important thing and uh, that we should be doing. I'm on board with that. But it's so easy for us to get distracted, right? It's so easy for us to make other things our priority. It's so easy for us to forget that it's harvest time and just to get focused on other stuff instead. We're super busy with life, you know, work, kids, all that kind of stuff. And we think, I, I ain't got time for that. You know, we think, no way, uh, can I be? Can I be? You know, putting on top of all the rest of my life evangelism as well. Or, or we might not actually be be thinking that consciously, but that's kind of what's going on in the back of our head. And we're so focused on material things like getting a house or a promotion or whatever, we're just not doing it. We're just, if we're honest, we're just not out there sharing the gospel. Um, and this is a big problem because if it's harvest time and the harvesters are just sort of hanging out at the house, uh, we, we've got something wrong. So what's the solution then? Well, the solution is not to beat yourself up about it, uh, to, to kind of feel, feel guilty and kind of force yourself, well, all right, I don't really want to, but I guess I'll tell someone about Jesus today. And then you don't do it. And then you're like, oh, well, whatever. That, that's not the solution. The solution is to do what Jesus says uh, in, uh, in verse 35 of John chapter 4. He says to the disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. I love that image. Open your eyes. The, the key to 
um, doing what God says is seeing God's truth. Okay, that, that's what faith is. Faith is being able to see God's truth, to open your eyes to the ultimate realities that are going on, and that will inform uh, the way that you live your life. Now, there's a great um, passage, I think it's in 2 Kings, uh, where um, Elisha uh, is with his servant Gehazi, and um, uh, Gehazi kind of goes out of the house, and he sees like th- this huge army coming towards them, and it looks like they're going to be totally destroyed and, uh, and he races back in to tell Elisha, and, uh, and Elisha says, uh, we've got more people on our side than they've got on theirs. And, you know, it's, it's just like the two of them. And Elisha kind of sticks his head back out again. He's like, uh, I, I don't think so. Oh, sorry, um, Gehazi sticks his head back out again. He's like, I don't think so, Elisha. I, I, I can really only count you and me. You know, there's like a lot more people in this army that's coming. And, um, and Elisha prays to God, Lord, open his eyes. And uh, what does Gehazi say? He sees uh, on the hills um, chariots of fire, the angels of God, and all the host uh, of, of, of angels there. Um, and Elisha was right. There are more on our side uh, than are on theirs. Um, but Gehazi had to see it. He had to have the eyes of faith to see the ultimate reality. And that changed his actions. It changed his attitude to the situation as well. I think we are the same. You know, when we look at our world today, we have a very, uh, a, a, a very poor picture of what's going on for Christians at the moment. Um, we're quite intimidated. I'm going to get to this in a second. Um, but what we need to do is open our eyes to the ultimate reality. And that's exactly what Jesus says uh, in verse 35. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. And that's what we need to do. If we're not evangelizing, we need to open our eyes. So what is it that we need to open our eyes to? We need to open our eyes to the fact that it's harvest time. We need to open our eyes to the ultimate realities uh, that we are in the messianic age, that now is the time of salvation, that the Messiah has come and he's died on the cross. And so death itself has been defeated. Um, the, The way has been opened to God. Eternal life is on offer. Cleansing of sin, receiving the Holy Spirit, uh, the gift of God, true worship, it's all there. If we come to Jesus, that's the time we live in. And, and to the extent that we open our eyes to that reality uh, is the extent to which we will go out and tell others about Jesus. Uh, or to put it simply, the more we see that it's harvest time, the more we'll be involved in harvest work. So that's that first level of uh, uh, th- th- that I think we're getting our priorities mixed up in, uh, that kind of personal level where personally we're just not out there Share it. Maybe you are. Maybe you're the exception, in which case, well done, fantastic. Please help other people to open their eyes as well. But if you're, if, if you're like the rest of us, it, it is a real struggle to get out there and tell people about Jesus. We need to open our eyes to the truth. There is, however, another level in which this is happening, and that's what I call the theological level. And now I'm, I'm really talking more to people who are in ministry um, because I think it's so easy for us. Maybe theological level is the wrong way to talk about it because... The, the theology shapes everything. Let's call it the ministry level. Uh, it's so easy for, for us to forget what job we're in when we're in ministry. Um, you know, we're so busy. We've got so many different things on our plate, so much work to do. Uh, and evangelism really gets pushed to the side, doesn't it? Uh, and we're kind of like, we're like a farmer uh, in the middle of a field, sitting in a harvester, um, going, what was it that I was meant to do again? There's like, there's something here that's important but I feel like I'm not doing it. 
and 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 that's a bit what it's like you know so many other things clamor for our attention evangelism gets put on the back burner and and again i think the reason is because we forget what time it is so i really want us to understand what the times are and we also need to we also need to see that that we are living in an age today that looks really bad for christians and so maybe more than in previous decades we are more tempted uh, to forget that now is the time for salvation because we look at all the things that are happening in the world around us and it, and it doesn't really feel like it. Uh, so I mentioned this in the essay that I wrote, but I think the biggest danger for us is the belief that we live in this secular age, right? That, that's what people think. Um, you know, we, we feel really threatened at the moment as Christians. Our place in the public square is diminishing. People are moving from, you know, just being ambivalent towards Christians to being openly hostile to Christians, um, our rights are in danger of being undermined. You know, it, it all looks bad, doesn't it? Um, and if you were to look at the world through that lens, then you'd act in a very different way. If you don't see with the eyes of faith, uh, you'll be more negative, you'll be more timid, uh, you'll be less likely to have a bash at something. You, you, you're in survival mode, uh, basically. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think, um, I think Philip Jensen was really helpful on this. You know, he used to say, don't look at the newspapers uh, to see what's going on in the world today uh, because the newspapers are the false prophets of the world. Uh, look at the Bible to see what's going on in the world today. And, and I think this is what we're doing. We're, we're looking at the newspapers. We're seeing uh, the world um, on a surface level and it's giving us a very negative picture of our times. We're forgetting that now is the time of salvation and so we're becoming really timid uh, and we're not getting out there. Um, so there was a book that came out last, I think it was last year, called The Benedict Option. Um, it's by a guy named Rod, Rod Dreher. Um, and it, it became really popular. A lot of people really liked it. Even, even people who said, oh, it's got some good things to say, bad things to say. It became really popular. Now, the guy who wrote it's not an evangelical. He grew up a Methodist and then converted to Roman Catholicism and then converted to Eastern Orthodox. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that he's kind of advocating a, monos- a monastic strategy. Right, the, the title of the book is The Benedict Option. Um, but what I was surprised at is how, how much evangelicals liked this and how, how many actually bought into this vision. And I think it's because they're, they're looking at the world in this negative way. And, and that's what Rod Dreher does. He's really got a negative picture of the times that we live in. Uh, he, he describes the time, kind of the description of the times now is we're in a post, you know, post-Christian era. Um, it sounds really bad and scary and and and, you know we we used to be in this christian era but now we're in post-christian era um so uh, i was reading a a blog about the book and uh, it was really interesting it kind of described all the different words sorry it it brought up all the different words that dreyer uses to describe our times Uh, so he describes our times as a thousand year flood uh, the most serious crisis since the fall of the roman empire i've actually heard him say that a few times Uh, he says we've lost on every front the dark age uh, has come, you know, this is the coming storm, it's an earthquake, we're living in Babylon. Um, and I kind of want to say, well, look, on one hand, sure, you know, Jesus says we're going to be persecuted, Jesus says we'll face opposition, if they persecuted you, they'll pers- if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Like, we shouldn't be expecting, you know, everyone to love us, but it's just such a negative picture uh, of our times that it actually makes us really timid. And this is kind of what Dreyer is saying. Um, he's calling for a retreat from society, um, it's not fully monastic, but but basically saying we need to live as detached communities. Now, I don't want to be too harsh. He, he, he's kind of he, you know his critique is right that 
uh, that Christianity in general is being sucked uh, into kind of secular culture, and uh, we're not distinct enough. But uh, he's just got such a pessimistic view of the world, and it really, I think, this attitude stops us from seeing that the harvest is plentiful, uh, which in turn will stop us from uh, going out into the harvest and doing harvest work. So I think we need to be more positive uh, about our times. I think we need to see that it's harvest time, and therefore we need to get out there and do harvest work uh, and have a bash at things. So what does that look like? Um, Well, as the title of my show suggests, uh, harvest work is word work. Um, That's what it's all about. It's the word that grows. So we unpacked this a bit in my first episode. I'll just go through it quickly again. Uh, how How are the Samaritan villages harvested? Um, First, the woman comes to them and says, come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. Uh, So she brings them to Jesus. That's what she does. This is how people come uh, to be saved. They've got to meet Jesus. They've got to uh, stay with Jesus. That's what the disciples did back in chapter 1, remember. Um, Now, at this point, we might think, oh, well, that's great for them. You know, back then, that's when Jesus was around. But what about now? What about now in this, you know, this post-Christian era? How are we going to reach people now? Jesus isn't around anymore. I don't have Jesus hanging out down by a well down the road that I can bring the whole village out to meet. Uh, But here's the key. Have a look at verse 41, chapter 4. Uh, This is what Jesus says. Oh, sorry. This is what John says. He says, Because of his words, that is Jesus' words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. So what was it that led them to faith? It wasn't Jesus' physical presence. It was his words. That's how they believed and then came to have eternal life. And that's what harvest work is today. We lead people to stay with Jesus. That is to hear Jesus' words, just as the Samaritan woman did. And as we do that, um, as we open up the Bible with people, and, and help them to hear Jesus' words, uh, those who believe will be saved. Uh, again, we see it at the end of chapter 4 with the healing of the official son. Uh, the Jews are rebuked by Jesus for only believing in signs. There's a contrast between the Samaritans. So the Samaritans believe without a sign. They only have the word of Jesus and they believe in him. The Jews uh, want signs instead. And so there's sort of a false faith where you only believe in signs as opposed to true faith where you believe in the word of Jesus. Um, And then we get this official who comes to Jesus and says, I want you to heal my son. And he insists that Jesus comes back with him. But Jesus refuses. He says, I'm only going to give you my word. Go, your son will live. Uh, And so what do we read? Verse 50, uh, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And and I feel like this is is like a little parable of what harvest work is, right? Um, He hears the word. The power to save is in the word. He believes, takes Jesus at his word, and his son is healed. That's how life comes. So what is the time? Well, now is the time of salvation. What does that mean? It's harvest time. We need to go out and call people to eternal life. How do we do that? Well, harvest work is word work. We share the word. We open up the Bible with people. All right, so... Uh, I'm really excited about this next segment uh, because it is the first interview that I've done uh, and because it's an interview with Peter Lynn. Uh, He's the bishop of the Georges River region. And if you know Pete, you know, he's just 
awesome. He's got great things to say. So I'm really excited about this interview. Uh, and, and thinking about this time we live in and the harvest work we have to do to reach the nations, I thought, well, who better to talk to than Pete um, and ask him about the harvest work that we're engaged in uh, here in the southwest of Sydney, which is where I'm based. Um, so I went to Pete's office to do the interview, uh, which is in an Anglicare warehouse in Villawood. And I think that already says something about the sort of bishop uh, that Peter Lynn is. He's not in the city dying the death of a thousand committee meetings. Um, he's here, he's in the area, he's in an Anglicare warehouse. Um, and when I came into his office, he was looking at a map on his wall of the region we're in, uh, almost like a general working out where to deploy his forces. Uh, it sounds tacky, but I'm kind of serious is what it looked like. Um, now, like I said, this was my first interview, and I'm still working out how to use the equipment, so I'm sorry, but the sound is a little low, so you might want to turn up the volume uh, to hear it properly. But um, let's now listen uh, to this interview with Peter Lin. Okay, um, so I've got Peter Lin, uh, Bishop of the Georges River region, here with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming uh, and doing this interview. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family? Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm married to Isabel. We have three daughters. Jessica is uh, 19, about to go into third year university. I have twins, Rebecca and Amelia, who are uh, in year 12 Queen Anne GC this year. Cool. Okay, great. Um, so uh, I'm interested in talking about your, the strategy that you have for reaching the Southwest, but I thought we'd do a bit of background mm, first. So sure. you weren't always bishop. Uh, you were at Fairfield and you were the rector there. How yep. long were you rector for? So I was at uh, Fairfield, St Barnabas Fairfield for 17 years. Okay. I was there as a student minister too. Right. So if you add that year, it was about, I added another year to that. Okay. Student. So 18 yeah. years. Yeah. 18 years on. Okay. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the Fairfield story? What it was like when you came? What happened? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fairfield was a very, very tiny church. Um, it was pretty much all, the people there were pretty much all Anglo-Saxons and Fairfield then was 90% uh, of people from a non-English speaking uh, background uh, and a church that was, was very small and, and uh, not quite surviving. Uh, the bishop at the time invited me to go there and, and see if we could uh, plant a church uh, there. So we did that in 19, went as a student in 1998. Mm. Was there, a, was there a minister there then? Or uh, they'd, they'd had locums for four years. Okay. So just uh, right. part-time yep. retired clergyman just running the service. Uh, yeah, so 1999, mm. my wife and I, one baby, went out uh, to, to Fairfield and uh, tried to get some ministry going there. Our first service had maybe 10 people or something like that. Before we and just for a bit of perspective, yeah. so what, what is it like now? What, what, how many people do you have at Fairfield now? Uh, so Fairfield now uh, is meets on at two sites. Yeah. So in Fairfield and another church at uh, Bosley Park, called all one church. Uh, Fairfield has an eight thirty service, a ten thirty service, and a six o'clock service. Bosley Park has a ten thirty service. Um, I, I don't know the exact numbers. Yeah. Hundreds. Wow. Uh, yeah. We run two Sunday schools on both sites. Two. Two youth groups, one on each site. Okay, uh, so how do you how do you get there? How can you fill in the eighteen years? I mean, quickly. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, but what did you do to try and reach the community in Fairfield? Uh, I made a lot of mistakes, really. Uh, 
certainly in the early years, because um, we didn't really start with many people, uh, you know, I, I knocked on doors. Uh, I just walked around Fairfield, the shopping area in Fairfield, and just went up and talked to people. I would go to community events to meet people. Uh, uh, Christmas and Easter were, were, were times where uh, we, we tried to raise the profile of, of the church so that people might come along. But really, it was just one by one talking to people. So in the early years, it, it grew very, very slowly. Uh, but then as, as people started to become Christians and the group started to get bigger, then they started inviting uh, people along to. We didn't do anything particularly innovative or sexy or mm. anything like that. <laughs> it was just just those basic things of, of talking to people. And it really grew one by one. So when you massive influxes of people. When you talk to people, you, yeah. you say you meet them on the street or you go door knocking, are you inviting them to church or are you... What, What's the next step? What are you doing with? Yeah, what are you doing with them? Well, I would invite them to church. <laughs> Very few would come. Yeah. Uh, so in those early days, it was a lot of just meeting up with people to talk to them about Jesus, um, and and uh, over time of, of meeting them and reading the Bible with them, uh, and the relationship growing. Yeah. Uh, then I would invite them to church. There were times we did particular things that. That were a stepping stone to church, so there were t there, there there were times where we would have. Uh, even though I'm Asian, we found it hard to reach Asians, right? And so there were times where we'd run um, an, an Asian kind of evangelistic Bible study group. Um, so that was just for Asians, and so when we met an Asian, we could invite them there, and they would see other Asians. Yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, and that worked really, really well. And so we'd run the group for only two or three years. Uh, and the, the first group built up to about 20, 20, 20, something like 25 people. And then we said, what are we doing to church on mm -hmm. Sunday? Mm -hmm. So we didn't really do anything. So just stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would, I would always ask people. But the initial response was, was usually negative. Yeah. Yeah. So what were, what, just trying to pull this together then, what were some of the lessons you think you'd learnt from for ministry in the Southwest, ministry in general, I guess, mm. about, you know, think, looking back on what worked, what are some of the key things that we can draw from that? Sure. Uh, I think uh, the, the key thing is, is loving people. Um, uh, you might not speak their language, uh, you might be from a completely different culture, but people respond to love, and people know when they're loved. Uh, and so I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of cultural errors. Mm. Uh, but I think a lot of people realised that I was well-intentioned, that I actually genuinely cared for them, and they responded to that. Uh, and, and that gave me more opportunity to learn more about their culture and what to do, what things not to do and, and what things I should do. So it's like, like kissing. You know, not romantic kissing, <laughs> but just saying hello. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Chinese people, Chinese people don't kiss or hug to say hello or goodbye. Barely even shake hands. Um, but you know, when I came across Middle Easterners mm. and they're kissing me on either cheek or yes. or, or, or and you got to uh, get the cheeks right as yeah, well. Yeah, South Americans <laughs> and some people do one. Yeah. Some people do two cheeks. Some yeah. people do three. Yeah. You know, a lot of the South Americans want a bear hug when you see them. Yeah. And, and I had to learn all that. Yeah. Kind of stuff. 
Um, the other thing that I think is, I mean, there have been, there have been some things that just work, mm. um, but I think at a really broad level, what seems to always work is food. Mm. Food is a way to express how you love people, and food is a way of saying, I want to spend a lot of time with you. Mm. Uh, and, and, and food uh, not only says that you want to spend a lot of time with you, it gives you that opportunity to spend a lot of time with people. Um, everyone needs to eat. Mm. Um, but a lot of, a lot of, cultures, uh, uh, community in those cultures happens around food. Mm. Uh, so uh, so people who may not know Jesus are, are, are attracted to, to, to spending time with people who want to share food and want to eat their food as well. Very important to eat uh, the food that the countries where people come from. So the things that have worked really well for us over those years yeah, so loving people, food, it's it's about getting involved in people's lives, yeah. spending that time. Um, you spent 18 years there. Do you think do you think that makes a difference being in there for the long haul? You know, a, a lot of the time in ministry, people will do a five-year stint, a seven-year stint, and then move on. Um, do you think that made a big difference? Yeah, I think that made a massive difference, actually. Yeah. Most people um, are from non-Christian backgrounds. Certainly in the first 10, 12 years, for most people in our church, it was the first church they've ever been to, their first church experience. Um, a lot of people come from backgrounds where there's suspicion of mm. Christian people and mm. Christian ministry. Mm. Um, and and a, lot of, a lot of people have no background whatsoever in the Bible. I can remember in the early years when I preached, I'd say, you know, remember Abraham in the Old Testament when I'd say something about Abraham or something about Remember that story about King David or Daniel in the light? And, and people going, never, ever been to Sunday school, never, ever opened a Bible in their life. Um, uh, and so that, being there for a long time meant that you feel that trust with them. Mm. Um, and uh, beginning those early days where people come not trusting, trust takes a while to build up. And then if I was just to disappear and then someone else comes along and say, no, 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 it would take a long time for me to, to, to build that trust. So I think longevity, in, particularly in southwest Sydney, is, is really, really crucial. So you've uh, spent 18 years there, and now you've changed roles. Mm -hmm. You're now the Bishop of the Georges River region. Yeah. Um, I imagine that must have been a hard decision. Um, but I think... You know, looking at it, you were doing such great ministry under God. You were doing such great ministry in Fairfield. Why leave Fairfield uh, to uh, not that there's anything wrong with being a bishop, but you know, to to be a bishop? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, look, I th I think it's possibly the hardest ministry decision I've, I've ever had to make, um, uh, and it was a, it was a, it took I took I, I took a long time <laughs> making that decision. I was very very resistant. Secret, really. Eventually, I said no to it. Said no for a while. Um, uh, in the end, it, it was a couple of um, older Christian men uh, who have been in ministry a long, long time, and that I really, really respect. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I should mention their names. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure. 
it's up to you, really. <laughs> Feel like James Simon Langley after. Uh, but but two men that um, that have really impacted me ministry. Yeah. Um, and I knew really cared about me. Yeah. But I also knew really cared about the gospel. And uh, uh, I, I, my wife and I, our intention was to stay at St Barnabas Fairfield till we retired, and then hopefully till we died. <laughs> um, uh, but both those men, and they didn't talk to each other, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> uh, about it, because um, I think I rang them on the same day, so they wouldn't have had time. But both of them really pushed me in terms of saying, uh, look, the ministry is not just about what you prefer and what you like, because my preference would have been to stay at St. Barnabas Fairfield. It's probably still my preference, to be honest. Um, but... Uh, they said, you've got to think about uh, the work of the gospel mm. uh, in terms of the kingdom of God, mm. not just your little patch. And if you can, and if you can make, uh, under God, a contribution to the wider work of the gospel, then you should. And both of them were saying to me, you should, <laughs> because you can, given the, you know, what, what uh, God has allowed you to see in Fairfield. Certainly, uh, you've now got the experience to be able to see that happening in, in the Georgia River region. I remember when um, when the decision was announced and our college year, uh, we have a Facebook page and we were talking mm. about it. And there were quite a few people who were going, "Oh, this is terrible! What you know? Why? Why pull? <laughs> well, why why pull out? You know, such a, a, a key." Minister who's doing such great work in the southwest where not a lot is happening, why pull him out uh, into the country? I remember, I think it was Matt Dodd actually, who said, "Yeah, but he'll," I think it was something like, "He'll reinvent what it what it looks like to do a mission," um, mm. and 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 I think, yeah, I feel like that's what I've seen. Um, what what do you see as your role as the bishop? Mm. Um, what does it mean for you to be a bishop? Yeah, look, I, I really see it as a mission director. Mm. Like that really is how I think about my role. Of course, there's other stuff mm. involved, but really, uh, I mean, when you walk in, I'm staring at the map <laughs> of the Georges River region right. because actually what I was doing was saying, where do I need to get gospel ministry going to next? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and so... The bulk of my time is spent uh, working on getting either new gospel ministries happening mm. or or helping churches um, in, their, in their gospel work and see if, if I can add value mm. to that mm. Uh, mm. Or, or seeing what I might be able to do to, to make it more effective. So what? So that, that's really how I see my role. It's, it's funny, I sent you a... Um I sent you an article, I think at the start of this year maybe, um, about J.C. Ryle when he became Bishop of yeah. Liverpool. And, um, yeah, I kind of can see some similarities. Liverpool was, was very unreached and Ryle came in as a mission director. And uh, it's a fantastic essay because it outlines yeah. his strategy yeah. for reaching Liverpool. What, what's your strategy? What do you want? What are the things as a bishop that you want to be doing uh, to help the gospel go out in the southwest. Yeah, sure. So, one one, it's about people. 
getting people in who who love the gospel, um, who have a, a a certain robustness about them, um, and who will just keep persevering in telling people about Jesus and then building up his people. Um, uh, uh, in the short term, really, it's just seeing who I can recruit that is out there. One of the things I did, uh, but I have medium and long term as well, one, one of the things that I was doing when I was Minister of St. Barnabas is, is we had a lot of student ministers. Uh, we would, um, the first year I had two, first two years I was at St. Barnabas, I had two student ministers. And then the next two years after that, I had four student ministers. And then every year after that, I had six, sometimes eight student ministers. Um, and part of that was to give people experience in Southwest Sydney so that in future years, they might um, uh, come and do ministry in, in Southwest Sydney. Um, and so I become bishop, you know, years and years later. And so these are the people I'm meeting up with. Many of them have come, which is very, very exciting. Uh, but uh, there is a medium-term thing, which is to try to get college students into churches in, in southwest Sydney to get that experience so that it's not so weird or foreign or scary, because it's not, um, uh, that they might come out. Longer term, so I've been involved in a, in a conference called SWETCON, uh, uh, Southwest Evangelism and Training Conference. Uh, and the, and the, one of the key purposes that we began that conference um, nearly 10 years ago was to uh, raise up people in Southwest Sydney um, uh, by, by training them to serve in their churches now. Um, uh, that you know, we might be able to identify some who could then go on to further study and then come back into the southwest. Mm. Uh, so there's that kind of long-term strategy. Mm. There's the medium-term mm. one, and then the short-term one of just seeing seeing mm. where there's a need who we can find. So it's uh, a it's a strategy in. of of multiplying the workers. Yeah, of, correct. Yeah, it, yeah. It's interesting. This episode, it's all about uh, looking at the harvest. The harvest is ripe, and you know, uh, in, in another part of in Matthew, Jesus says, "Pray to the Lord of the Harvest that He send workers out." Yeah. And this is this is the strategy that we have. Yeah, yeah, in yeah, the harvest yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, prayer, like yeah, yeah, every day. Yes, yeah, <laughs> every day. So I was just making the assumption that That's we're, we're always we're, assumed. We're, because we may yeah. as well we may as well give up now. Yeah, if we're not praying, yeah, we may as well just give up. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, speaking of prayer, then, is there any way that we can be praying for you in your role as a bishop? Sure. Um, uh, Wisdom and, and persuasion. <laughs> so wisdom in terms of uh, uh, the, the what you know the best places to to try to start a work next, mm. um, uh, and persuasion in terms of you know godly gracious persuasion in terms of uh, you know finding the, the the right people to go in there to to see gospel work happen. Um, uh, but also, you know, wisdom and persuasion where uh, we already have gospel ministry and we're trying to build up those teams so that even more gospel ministry mm. can happen. Mm. Um, I, I think there are, there are some differences in Georgia River region in terms of ministry. And so I, I think there is a bit of wisdom in, in um, recruiting the people most suited. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so 
Mm. So wisdom and persuasion and you know, energy and perseverance. Absolutely. Yeah, let me, um, just to finish, let me read a quote. This is from J.C. Ryle. As he was starting, this is what he told his clergy. He said, the first thing needed is not buildings, but living men. Men ordained if you can get them, men not ordained if you can get no one else. But in any case, men who have the grace of God and the love of souls in their hearts and will go out in and amongst the roughest classes in a friendly manner and win their converts. There you go. And I hadn't even read that. Before. There you go. <laughs> thanks so much, Peter. Yeah, um, thanks, Tom. And we'll, we will pray for you. And hopefully more and more people can join in the harvest work. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay, well, let's finish with a signs of grace. And, you know, after that interview, I thought, well, what better to be thankful for than God's uh, grace that he has shown in the past 20 years in Fairfield and also the grace that he's continuing to show today in the southwest of Sydney. Um, listening to that interview again, I was struck by how um, Peter Lynn kept saying, you know, it was one person at a time. It was just one person at a time at Fairfield, one person at a time. And, you know, I think that's the Southwest, in my experience. Um, harvest time, you know, the, the idea of harvest time, it can sound like we're meant to see thousands of people, you know, banging down the door of our church. And, hey, if that happens, wonderful. But it is often a lot less eventful than that, isn't it? It's hard work. It's slow work. And it's often one person at a time work. Um, but each person who comes to know Christ is a sign of God's grace at work in the world. And I think when we see things that way, it does change the way we do ministry. That one person at a time is, a, is an amazing, awesome picture of God's grace in the world. And so seeing that one person at a time, one person at a time, one person at a time in Fairfield, God's kind, gracious act of calling people to eternal life, giving the gift of life, giving his spirit, bringing them into his presence as, as, as his spirit lives in them, saving them. Um, that is God's grace again and again. And then you multiply it over those 20 years and, and hundreds of people. It's, it's this overflowing of grace. Um, the other thing that struck me about the interview and that made me really thankful was that Pete said he made a lot of mistakes um, when he came to Fairfield. I don't think that's a negative thing. Uh, I've talked to Pete a lot about this. And what he means is, is that he just tried everything and anything. Like He just kept on trying things all the time. Uh, and a lot of them just didn't work. But he's got pretty tough skin, uh, and it doesn't bother him if something fails. He just kind of goes, all right, well, that, that was dumb. Um, let's try something else. And he just had a go. He had a bash. Um, and again, I feel like that comes from seeing that it's harvest time. You, you have the confidence to just get out there and have a go. Um, and I think that's another sign of God's grace, um, that, that we know that God's grace is at work in the world. We know that it's harvest time. And so we'll just get out there and we'll keep on trying stuff. And, and we don't give up. We just keep on trying and trying and trying because we know that the harvest is ripe and that it's time to go out and reap that harvest. So lots to be thankful for and inspired by uh, as we see God's grace at work. Um, and please do keep praying for Peter Lynn and for his role as bishop. But otherwise, that's it for us this week. Uh, don't forget, if you like this episode, to subscribe, leave a comment or, and a rating on iTunes. That's very helpful. And also please share on social media. It really does help this podcast to grow. My name's Tom Abib and you've been listening to The Word Grows.